All right, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1, and we'll be picking up in verse 8. We covered the first seven verses last week. We'll be doing 8 through 21 of Judges chapter 1 this week. Uh, If you don't already know, page 5 of your worship guide, there's some space to take notes or doodle, whatever keeps you attentive and engaged. Uh, There's a two-point outline and then a bunch of reflection questions, seven reflection, reflection questions this week. So make use of that, especially if it helps you stay extra attentive to what God's showing us here in the first chapter of Judges this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read for us from Judges 1, verses 8 through 12. This is the inerrant, active, and living word of the Lord, so give it your full attention. Judges chapter 1, verse 8. <clears throat> and the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Achiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and they settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and they devoted it to and they devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from, the, from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Y'all can have a seat. And I invite you to pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, every week I'm reminded of the, the fact that As we gather to study your word, you tell us that we don't live by bread alone. We are most, we are most nourished and most helped by every word that comes from, from you, our father. And we ask God that you would make us hungry for what you're feeding us right now, that we would embrace it, that we would, we would cherish it or treasure it. Uh, and that it would transform the way we think, the way we navigate life, the way we react to stress, the way we make choices. We ask, God, that your, your word would not return to you void, but it would bear uh, a lot of fruit in, in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. 
So as many of you all are aware, tomorrow, Monday, January 9th, 2023, the horned frogs and the bulldogs will do battle in the national championship, the college football national championship. And I mean, you can just tell by the names of the teams, the horned frogs and the, and the bulldogs, it's going to be epic. It's going to be a, a fierce battle. Um, now, somewhat less epic was a game that was played on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2022. Uh, the name of the game was called the Sugar Bowl, which I realize sounds very exciting. Sugar, we all love sugar. It's one of our favorite things. Uh, but it was, it was actually a big disappointment. It, in that way, it sort of lived up to its name uh, because like sugar, you know, at first it's sweet and it's energizing and, and it's a lot of fun, uh, but then afterwards there's, there's a crash. So, so in that game, the one on December 31st, the Wildcats played the Elephants and uh, just like sugar, it started out really, really fun. The first quarter, it was very commendable. The Wildcats were up 10 to zero. Uh, but then the remaining three quarters, hardly anything good happened. It was, it was a train wreck, at least if you're a, a Wildcats fan like myself. And that's kind of like what's going on here in the book of Judges. It starts out really positive. It starts out in, in a very commendable way. There are people here, God's people, specifically operating with confidence rooted in the Lord. And, and this is the kind of boldness and confidence that you want to see in God's people. It's the kind of confidence and boldness that's worth commendation. It's worth esteeming and imitating. But then, throughout the rest of the book, and increasingly as the book goes on, we'll see fear encroach on and eclipse that confidence. We'll see fear eroding the confidence of God's people. We'll see timidity and insecurity and an unhealthy compromise enter the story and kind of take over. But first, what we see, God shows us, is, is confidence. True, uh, legitimate, healthy confidence in the Lord. And that's what we see in verses 8 and following. Look again at those verses. It says, the men of Judah, because God had commanded them to, go into the promised land and they fight against all these various cities. They fight against Jerusalem. Uh, they devote it to destruction. They capture the city. They strike it with the edge of the sword. They set it on fire. And then they go and they fight against the Canaanites who live in the hill country and the Negev and in the lowland. And, and they defeat all these various people. They defeat Sheshai and Achiman and Talmai and the inhabitants of Debir. And there's more of this later in verses 16 through 18. And this is all very good. Again, because God commanded it. God said, I want you to go into this land and I want you to conquer it. And I want you to settle it. And so we see here Judah is operating with, with a healthy version of confidence, a really good version of confidence of being bold and going into this land and fighting against it. And, and they're operating with this confidence because they're trusting in God. Confidence is, is born out of trusting and obeying God. That's how confidence works. And we all kind of realize this. We all know that confidence is predicated on healthy trust and obedience. So when people are real shrill and, and worried and alarmed, or maybe they're, they're really cantankerous and they blame shift and they criticize, that's because they don't have a deep-seated confidence in the Lord. Because all of that insecurity is evidence that they're trusting in themselves. They're leaning on their own understanding. So what God wants for us is he wants us to operate with confidence, and he wants us to realize that that can only come from us trusting him and obeying him. 
An example of this from my life in 2004, when we first moved to Charlotte, I worked for Dick's Sporting Goods. And um, every now and again, my boss would come by and he'd say, why don't you go on a 10 minute break? And so maybe I'd go to the break room, you know, get something to drink and take a 10 minute break. And then sometimes I would stretch the 10 minute break to 20 minutes. And then maybe on occasion, 30 minutes. And then I'd realize, you know, I, I get an employee discount, so maybe I can take this break time and I can walk around the store and sort of peruse, you know, because I get, I get the employee discount, so I'd go to the shoe section and just sort of shop. I'd sort of see what, what kind of shoes I might want to buy down the road. But when I did that, I would sort of be nervous, sort of looking over my shoulder because I knew my boss was lurking around here somewhere. And so I didn't have a lot of confidence because I wasn't actually obeying the whole 10-minute break protocol. I was, I was nervous, I felt insecure when I, would, when I would break this rule, when I would be disobedient to my boss because I knew this isn't, this isn't the way it's supposed to work. I wasn't confident. Now, now why was I hired by, by the Sporting Goods store? Well, I was hired to work at the rock climbing wall at the, at the store in South Park. There used to be a rock climbing wall right in the middle of the store. It's not there anymore. But I was supposed to, to work at that rock climbing wall and belay people, you know, hook them into their harnesses and belay them up this 50-foot wall. And that was another illustration, another example of how confidence is based on obedience and trust. So, for example, if somebody showed up to the rock wall and they say, look, I'm just going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm just going to put on the harness however I feel like. I'm going to tie the knot myself. They should not have confidence to climb 50 feet in the air. They might have what the Bible refers to as foolish confidence, but that's not the kind of confidence God wants. It, the only way you're going to climb a 50-foot rock wall is if you trust someone else to hook you up and to hold the other end of the rope, if you, if you obey the way they say to do it. And see, the author of Judges really wants us to experience what the Bible would call Christ-centered confidence. And we see that being emphasized here. The author of Hebrews really camps out for a little while, zooms in on this theme of confidence. And so we see that in verse 12. We see that in the character of Caleb. Uh, Caleb has a very commendable record of being confident in the Lord. So sometime before this chapter, like 40-ish years ago, before this scene in Judges chapter 1, we, we see Caleb with this group of spies. You can go read about this in Numbers chapter 13. And these spies go into the land, the land that's being conquered in, in this seen here in Judges 1 and throughout the book of Joshua. And they spy out the land for 40 days and they come back to God's people with a report. And they say two things. One, the land is very good. It's a land of milk and honey, just like God promised. It's a fruitful land and, and it's really exciting to think about us living in that land. But their other, their other detail they reported was that there were giants living in the land. The descendants of the Anak were living there. And everybody was scared. Everybody was nervous. You could see fear starting to eclipse the confidence that God's people were supposed to have in the Lord. But this guy, Caleb, and his, and his friend Joshua, they admonished everybody to trust God. They said, yes, there are giants in the land, but God is with us. The same God who brought us out of Egypt, the God who, who defeated Egypt, that God is with us. So yeah, the giants are scary, but we have God on our team, so we can trust him. We can be confident. We can obey God. And we see Caleb is still operating with that mentality. Here in, in Judges chapter 1, he is still confidently challenging people to boldly trust and obey God. So he says here in verse 12, whoever attacks this city, Kiriath Sefer, and, ca and captures it, I 
will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And we need to be clear, this is not foolish confidence. This is not bravado. It's confidence in the Lord. We, we really can be confident about what God commands us to do. We can be confident about what God says. We can be confident in a very healthy way. We can be confident about what we see God clearly emphasizing in Scripture. God wants us to, to operate with that kind of confidence. So the best example of that in Scripture would be Jesus. So one example of Jesus's life, how he operated with, with confidence and how God uh, displays the confidence of the Lord is found in Luke chapter 21, where these people come up to Jesus and they tell him, hey, you should be impressed with the temple complex. You should be enamored with attractive property, like, like Fixer Upper, you know, Chip and Jojo. You should be really impressed with renovated houses and structures and attractive property. And then there are people tithing lavish sums of money. And the world would say, you should be attracted to and enticed by affluent people. So you should be, you should be totally enamored with, with attractive property and affluent people. But Jesus responds to that by saying, that is not where I'm going to put the emphasis. In fact, I am going to denounce materialism. He, he looks at that temple building, all the attractive stones that were used to build the temple, and he says, I'm going to tear this down. It's kind of a, a party pooper. He's saying, I'm going to tear this down and rebuild it. And he ultimately says that because he's talking about himself. He's talking about how he's going to die, how he's going to be crucified, and, yet, and how he's going to serve us. He's going to suffer in our place. And that's where scripture puts the most primary emphasis. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I resolve to know nothing other than Christ and him crucified. This is the message. This is what we preach and we can be confident about that message. Paul has this letter to the church in Galatia where it's, it's all about preaching the, the absolute exclusivity of Christ. Christ died for sinners and that is how we are justified. You don't add anything to it. And then there's this one part of Galatians where, where he says, you know, one of the outworkings of, of preaching the gospel and believing the gospel is that we remember the poor. So that's another thing we as God's people can be really confident about. We, we ought not to be super confident about making a lot of money and growing in our prosperity and being really sort of safe and predictable in terms of our finances, but we can be really confident and bold when it comes to remembering the poor because that's something that's emphasized all throughout Scripture. Here's an example of that from recent history. A few weeks ago, this guy Jim Saunders came to our life group. Y'all know Jim Saunders? He's kind of a character. Here's what I mean by that. He came to our life group, and this guy had the audacity to tell us, to challenge us, to go and hang out with homeless people, and then actually gather up their laundry and go to a laundry mat at night and do the homeless people's laundry. When was the last time you were in a laundry mat? Did you feel safe in a laundry mat at night? Do you feel comfortable going to a laundry mat at night? Do you feel like you want to go and do a bunch of homeless people's laundry? The audacity of Jim Saunders to challenge us to do this. How did he get that kind of confidence? Well, he sees it in Scripture. The Scripture says you remember the poor. You go hang out with people who the world would call the least of these. Because according to Matthew chapter 25, that's where Jesus most emphatically is present. Jesus is everywhere, but Jesus says, I am most emphatically present with the poor, with the weakest, with the smallest, Right? That's his kingdom. He says the greatest 
The greatest in my kingdom are the smallest, the weakest. And so Jesus situates himself very primarily in context where that's happening. This is a huge theme. This is a huge point of emphasis throughout scripture. Sojourners, widows, orphan, the poor. It's built in. It's built into the Old, Old Testament Israelites' legislation. Like their, their culture systemically included these laws where every year when you'd go harvest your crops, you actually had to leave some of your crops out in the field because it belonged not to you, the, the owner of that property, the owner of that field. It belonged to the poor. It, be, it belonged to the refugees and the sojourners and the immigrants. God says, you, you, need, you need to be on board with what I emphasize in Scripture. A good example of that here amongst us is, is Rachel Vaughn. She's here today. I won't have her come up and share this. I'll share it on her behalf. I asked her permission. Uh, Rachel Vaughn lives in what I would call a sojourner's apartment complex here in Charlotte. And you ask the question, well, why, why did she choose to live amongst all these sojourners and refugees and immigrants? Well, number one, she needs a place to live and it's close to where she works, so it's convenient. But, but more than that, it's because she was pressured by people who are very bold and very confident, uh, people who pressure their brothers and sisters toward what God would say is difficult, but it's really good. So she took this trip to Athens, Greece last year, and our friends, the Petrus, they've been here to ECPC before, they've come up here and talked to us, uh, they displayed this kind, of, this kind of lifestyle where they go and they live amongst people who the world would see as sojourners. And so she was influenced by that. And then she came back home to the United States and she hung out with people who work for the Charlotte Eagles. And they said, well, you know, if you need a place to live and you work in such and such a place, you should live amongst these refugees and these immigrants and these sojourners because it's a good place to live. These are good neighbors to have. And according, again, to Matthew chapter 25, this is where Jesus really likes to be. Right? I mean, the goal of all of our lives as disciples of Christ is to, to be with Jesus a lot, to follow him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. And so if Jesus says, you know, I prefer more often than not to hang out with the least of these, with the sojourners, the widows and the orphans and the small ones, well, then that's where you're going to get more of Jesus, apparently. It's actually really, really good. It's not so much charity work. It's just good for us to go places where we know we're going to encounter more of Christ. And that feels really radical to a lot of us. It feels sort of disturbing or unsettling, but that's what we see throughout, all throughout Scripture. Uh, Caleb issues this challenge. Whoever attacks a city because they're confident in the Lord, I will give that man my daughter as a wife. Right? He incentivizes his, his challenge by saying, Oxa will be given as a wife. And so Othniel, verse 13, steps up and he accepts the challenge. And he succeeds, and then he becomes Caleb's son-in-law. And here we see the premier example of healthy confidence in this chapter. It's Oxa. Oxa, Caleb's daughter. And this is not surprising when you read scripture. It's, it's not a coincidence that Oxa is being put up in front of us as, as the premier example of healthy confidence. Because women in scripture, they occupy this role of submission and weakness which is actually a very great role, according to Jesus. Who was, the, who was the character in Scripture who operated with the most boldness and the most confidence? Well, it was Christ, the Son of God, whose joy was to submit to the will of his Father, his head. That's what it says in Scripture. So, so it's no coincidence that a woman, Oxa, is being put up here as the premier example of boldness and confidence. 
First Peter chapter three uses this expression about, about women that might be offensive to some of us. It says they are the weaker vessel. But in God's kingdom, in God's economy, he says submission and weaker vessel, that's my recipe for confidence, boldness, and greatness. And the scripture is full of evidence that this is how God works. You just go throughout scripture, you see it all over the place. Rahab the prostitute, the citizen of Jericho, she is so bold. She is so confident. You see this in Deborah, the prophetess, later in this book of Judges. You see it in Esther, Queen Esther. You see it in Ruth, the refugee, coming from the land of Moab into the land of Israel. You see it in Mary, the mother of Jesus. And my favorite example, you see it in Joanna. Everybody know who Joanna is? It's a familiar Bible name, right? It's kind of obscure. Well, I don't know if this clarifies it, but Joanna is the wife of Chusa. Does that help out? Does that clarify it for you? Okay, here's a name you might have heard, Herod, Herod. Okay, Herod is no friend of Jesus, right? Herod uh, beheaded Jesus' relative and forerunner, John the Baptist. Chusa is Herod's right-hand man. Chusa is the BFF of Herod. Chusa's wife is Joanna. And in Luke chapter eight, guess who's financing Jesus' ministry? Joanna. <laughs> Joanna is a devout, faithful follower of Jesus. Now, if that doesn't take some audacity, some boldness and confidence, I don't know what does. I mean, how, how shrewd and confident does just Joanna have to be to, to sort of take money? I mean, ultimately, that's sort of aligned with Herod and, and subversively funnel it toward Jesus. That is amazing to me. And this is what God's doing all throughout Scripture. He's saying these women are great examples, worthy of esteeming and imitating of confidence and boldness. They have voice, they have value. And we see that here in the story of Aksa, her request. God's putting that up in front of us as a great example of how we should be. Aksa's request is in tune with and aligned with God's command to go in and conquer the land and, and settle in it. So they get this land and she goes to her dad and says, well, if we have this land, we're gonna need to irrigate it. I need springs of water. And we see Caleb is very happy to, to provide her with what she's requesting. This is a very healthy picture of, of the dynamic that God wants to see happening in the promised land. Now, as we've said, the book of Judges, it, it goes off the rails. And by the time we get to verse 19 or chapter 19, uh, the, the dynamic between men and women is not healthy anymore. There, there's no real good positive picture of confidence and health and boldness. But here, it's pretty positive. As a point of application, let me challenge all of you to be really clear and really decisive about your boldness and your joy when it comes to asking and giving. Okay, we're still in the, the New Year's resolution territory. You know, 2023 is, is still fresh. And so maybe one of the goals that, that you need to, to clarify for yourself is how am I going to ask for something this year with boldness? I'm going to ask God and I'm going to ask other people to get on board with fill in the blank. I'm going to ask them for money. I'm going to make, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm not going to have a problem with it because it's what God says is good. It, it may be uncomfortable or unsettling to people, but honestly, I don't really care. I'm going to be unashamed, no apologies, because God puts such an emphasis on it. So here's an illustration. Every year, a few times a year, my alma mater, Kansas State University, they send me a letter asking for money. And I am not excited to give them money for two reasons. Number one, they lost the sugar bowl. If they're going to play like that, they're not getting my money. And number two, 
I already gave them a lot of money, right? I don't go there anymore. I'm not, I'm not excited to give them money, so I'm not going to give them money. But if, if somebody comes to me and they say, hey, we're adopting a child, that's very expensive. And we need to raise tens of thousands of dollars, like $30,000, $40,000. That is something they should be excited to ask for, and that is something we should be excited to give to. You got to think, where, where am I willing to, to make people feel uncomfortable and issue admonitions and challenges because it's what God says is good? It's going to be hard. It's going to be kind of risky, perhaps. That's how people feel about going into the promised land. But people like Caleb, they are very comfortable with issuing challenges. People like Oxar are very comfortable asking for things because it's what God says is good. Now, like we said before, here in Judges chapter 1, things are going well, all the way up to verse 19. But then we get to verse 19, and we start to see fear encroach on this chapter. Fear starting to eclipse the confidence that is on display in Caleb and Othniel and Aksa. Verse 19, it says, The Lord was with Judah, and so Judah took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. What's going on here? Uh, the author of Judges is being provocative. The author is being very deliberately provocative. He says, Judah could not drive out the inhabitants. Why? Because the people in the land had iron chariots. And right before that, he said, the Lord was with them. The author's being sarcastic. The, the Bible uses sarcasm. Did, did you know that? Jesus sometimes says things that, that feel offensive and sarcastic. If you read the Bible, you'll see it. It's like saying Elon Musk was with us, but we couldn't afford to eat out at Ruth's Chris. I get it. I get it. Ruth's Chris, $60 steak, that's nothing to bat an eye at. I mean, that's pricey, okay? But if Elon Musk is with you, you can afford to eat out at Ruth's Chris every night of the week if you want. This guy has billions of dollars. And that's what God's saying to his people. Yes, they have iron chariots. And I get that that's intimidating. But this is the God of the Exodus. This is the God that wrecked Egypt. He took, he took Pharaoh on and just destroyed him. He took this group of slaves out of bondage. He did it like it was nothing. We have God on our team. Fear creeps in and it starts to erode our confidence. And we're going to see that throughout the book of, of Judges. One of the most famous stories of this in, in Scripture, really memorable, famous stories about this is Matthew 14, where Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. Remember this story? And he asks Jesus, can I come out and walk on the water with you? And Jesus says, sure, get out here. And, and Peter's doing great as long as he's looking at Jesus. But then what happens? He takes his eyes off Jesus. And he starts to look at the waves. He starts to feel the, the threatening wind and he gets scared and he starts to sink. And that's a picture of what's happening here in the book of Judges. The people are doing well. They have their eyes fixed on God and then they stop looking at God. They start looking at the iron chariots and they start to feel intimidated and insecure. Now, now what should we do when we start to feel this, this fear creeping in? Because it's going to be there. It's always going to be crouching at our door desiring to have us. Fear's going to be lurking around, prowling around, enticing us away from confidence in Christ. 
So what should we do? Well, we should preach the gospel to ourselves. We should tell ourselves that, that God is with us, past and present. There's proof all over Scripture that God will provide a way, even if it feels like there is no way. So in this chapter, the Israelites should, should really look at Othniel and, and see, look, God provided a way. Othniel attacked a city. Kiriath Sefer was taken out by Othniel because, not because Othniel was great, not because Othniel had all of this strength intrinsically, you know, bound up in his efforts, but because God was with him. Caleb's, Caleb's still going strong. Caleb is an old man in this chapter, and it says in verse 20, Hebron was given to Caleb, just as Moses commanded, and he drives out the sons of Anak. Caleb is still fighting giants. He's still cleansing the land of these, these people groups that God says to destroy. And of course, we can always look back and remember how God has been with his people through the days of the Exodus and the days of Joshua. In fact, if you read through the stories that are, that are presented to us in Joshua, you'll see that this fear of chariots business is, is very specifically addressed. In chapter 17, Joshua chapter 17, the tribe of Joseph comes to Joshua whining, they're complaining about how they, they need more land. They just, don't, they just don't have enough territory. They don't have enough land. And so Joshua says, well, there's some forest area over there. Go ahead and clear some area in that forest and just settle you know, the remainder of your people in that, in that area. And Joshua says, that's a lot of work, clearing a forest. I mean, they don't have chainsaws back then. This is a lot of work. And, and Joshua says, well, tough, get to work. Don't be lazy. Go, go clear the forest. And then the tribe of Joshua says, well, there are Rephaim there. This is another branch of the, the race of the giants. And, and they say, and they're not just giants, but they have iron chariots. And Joshua says, you'll be fine. Stop complaining. Go clear the forest. Go kill the giants. Don't worry about the iron chariots. That is a poor excuse because God is with you. Stop being ruled by fear. You're admonished. Don't let fear take over your life. We, we live with such a constant state of fear. What if? What if this happens? What if that happens? Constantly fretting and worrying. And God says, that is not legitimate. And you need to have people in your life who will kind of bust your chops on this. You know that, that, famous, that famous story of, of Catherine von Bora, Martin Luther's wife, right? And, and he had it tough. He had a lot of hard things going on. And he came home one day and he was sort of sulking. And, and Kathy had seen him in this state for a few days. And so she dressed up in all black. Remember this story? And, and Marty was like, what's up? Why are you dressed in all black? And Kathy goes, well, I just assumed God was dead. So I put on my black attire because that's how you're acting right? You need a spouse who will bust your chops like that because they love you. You need a spouse who when you start feeling really, uh, you know, immersed in your fear and you're ruled by all the fearful what ifs, they'll say, stop it. Knock it off. My wife does this for me. She did this for me in a big way when it came to kids, both biological and adopted. When it comes to God's command to be fruitful and multiply and care for the orphans, all throughout our marriage, I'm the guy who's like, oh, that's scary. Kids are scary. I don't know how to handle kids. I don't know if I could be a good dad. There's a lot of we, a lot of responsibility there. I'm scared. And my wife, she loved me enough um, to, to, to say, you've, you've got to get on board with what God commands. We're going to be fruitful. We're going to multiply. We're going to care for the orphans. We're going to parent some kids, even though that comes with a lot of unknowns and a lot of scary stuff. 
my wife and I, we came up with this illustration because when it came to kids, I was like walking in the kid marina, you know, walking the docks. I'm like, you know, these boats look neat. And my wife was like, well, let's get in one of these boats and actually paddle out away from land, you know, where it gets scary, where you lose sight of shore. And like, like let's, let's take the plunge. Like, let's actually paddle a, a parental boat out into the ocean. And I was just sort of, you know, mixing metaphors here, kicking the tires on the boat. I know they don't have tires, but I didn't really want to get in because it was scary. I mean, the waves are scary. There are crazy creatures in the ocean. The inclement weather, it's scary. And my wife at a couple of different points in our marriage has had to say, get in this boat and row with me. We're not, we're not doing this anymore. You're called to do hard things that are scary, but it's for your own good. And it's for God's glory. We're not going to be ruled by fear. You know why? Because God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us the Holy Spirit, and, and the Spirit is not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit of power and love and self-control. It's not just any old love. It's perfect love, which the Bible says casts out all fear. And again, keep in mind, the sin of fear will always be lurking and crouching at your door and threatening to unsettle you. And so what we see here in verses 19, verse 21, we see that the people of God are being ruled by fear. But the Bible says you can resist it. It desires to have you. It desires to rule you, but you can resist it. So what does that look like? Well, here are a few examples. Uh, it's very logical. It's actually very logical, and it's very, very instinctive to want to defend yourself. But understand this. Your defensiveness comes from a place of fear. When you're acting defensive, that's not of the spirit. That's your flesh. You're, you're being defensive because you're afraid. When you want to defend yourself, um, you want to blame shift, that's not of the spirit. So we have to have the courage not to blame shift, not to be defensive all the time. Here's another example. We need to let our yes be yes. There are things in life that uh, you say yes to, and then a few minutes, maybe a few days go by, and you start to get scared. You start to think, oh, what did I get myself into? You start to kind of do the math on it or count the cost, and you think, I need to figure out an excuse. I need to figure out a way to exit uh, my vow, my, my vow of saying yes to that thing. I know an increasing number of people who are afraid that they're never going to feel happy in their marriage again. They hit a place in their marriage and they think, you know, I didn't feel this way when we got married or else I wouldn't have said yes. But now I just don't know if I could ever be happy or feel totally content or safe. And so I need to find a way out. And God says, that's not how it works. What God has joined together, we're not just going to quit. We're not going to separate it. We're going to stick it out. We're going to do the hard work. We're going to fight through the fears. We're going to hope against hope. We're going to bear all things. We're going to endure all things. That's the life of a disciple of Christ, not fear. You know, it's, it's common sense to integrate with all the dominant world religions, both, both in the days of Judges and now. The dominant world religion is materialism. And God says, stop medicating yourself with stuff. Amazon.com. Why do we do it? Why, why do we buy all this stuff? We don't, we don't need it. Can we all admit that? We don't need it. Why do we do it? It's because we're scared. It's because we're scared. We can control this. We can push a button and it can show up on our doorstep the next day. And it just feels nice to be able to control something, to get something new. Because we're scared. We're insecure. And God says, instead of that, instead of being ruled by fear, you know what the Bible says? This is so fun. You know what the Bible says? It says, look at the birds. 
Look at the birds. That's how you combat fear. It's one of the premier ways, Jesus said, to combat fear. I'm not making this up. He says this in multiple places in the gospel. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Stop fretting about your food and your clothing and your resources. Instead, look at the birds. Watch. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. And then Jesus always says, don't you realize that you are of so much more value than the birds? At another place, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from our father's will. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of far more value than the sparrows. See, what gives you confidence ultimately is that God saw you in your wretched condition, your, your fearful, fretting, anxious, wretched condition, and he moved towards you and he says, I want to, I want to love you perfectly. You will be confident, you will be bold because of the perfect love of God, which will cast out all fear. And so what is the picture of God's perfect love? What's the picture of that? The perfect display of God's perfect love. Well, it's Jesus. It's what it says about Jesus in Hebrews chapter four. Let me just end by reading you this, this portion of Hebrews four. Just let this hit you, soak this in. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. When you're fretting, that's, that's all part of your, your weakness, right? You feel frail, you feel insecure. And we have a high priest who moved toward us and he intimately chose to acquaint himself with all of how that feels. That's your high priest. He was tempted in every respect, just as we are. And because he never gave into it, he knows it far more intensely than any of us know that, that sin struggle, that, that temptation. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's every day. Every day we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because of what Christ has proven to us. God loves us and he wants to envelop us in that love and he wants to provide us with mercy and grace to help us every day in our time of need. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would please do this, that you would draw us into this place of trusting you because we will never really have joy and confidence and boldness unless we do. Uh, we, we need you to shepherd us uh, in such a way that we really experience the peace and the confidence of God because that's what you want for us. That's why you say you're the author and perfecter of, of our faith. You're the one who cultivates uh, this, type of, this type of reliance, this radical reliance that you describe in scripture. Uh, we pray that you would do that for us, all of us here today, and, and do that for the people that we do life with. Uh, make us a, a community that sharpens each other and spurs each, other's, uh, each other on to, to really, uh, truly rely on Jesus and thereby experience the confidence that we have in Christ alone. We ask this in his name. Amen.